Our scripture reading this morning comes again from the book of James. I invite you to turn there with me to James chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of this chapter. If you have a a pew Bible there, you'll find this reading on page 1012. Here James follows up his teaching on the tongue with a teaching on quarrels and fights and equally convicting section of of God's word. Let's read verses 1 through 6 together. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. As we come this morning to another convicting and another challenging section of God's word. So before we work our way through it, let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we have sung of our great Savior, this man of sorrows who makes your love known. We thank you that as we come to your text, we come to a Father who is ready and able to teach us, ready and able to instruct us, ready and able to make the glory and wonder and joy of your word a reality in our lives and in our experience. So, Lord, we ask uh, that you would make our minds and our hearts teachable and attentive, that we would hear from you in this section of Scripture this morning, and that we would be changed by it. Lord, we really eagerly desire uh, to be more like your Son, and we ask that you would use this section of your word to that end. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name, amen. When was the last time for you, the last time that anger got the better of you, the last time you became embroiled in a quarrel, the last time you became embroiled in a fight? Some of you will have to cast your minds all the way back to the very start of this service. When you said an angry word to the child who was misbehaving, some of you, the the more holy among you, will have to cast your mind back all the way to the car ride on the way here where you and your spouse got into it because they were late again. Um, The particularly holy, those who are just, you know, a step from full glorification, will have to cast your minds back all the way to that day of yore known as yesterday. (laughs) When anger got the better of you, got embroiled in a fight or in a quarrel. One of my own memorable outbursts of anger didn't even come to, to a person. Um, I remember that uh, I got embroiled in uh, a fight. I got invo- embroiled in, in a quarrel with a kitchen drawer that, 
was just willfully and obstinately refusing to be fixed. Now, I won't get into the details of it. I'll just tell you that it, was, it took four trips to Home Depot to fix this thing. Uh, such is my inability when it comes to practical things that we summarize the difficulty of a job by how many trips it took me uh, to Home Depot. And this was definitely a four-trip job. And it reached its climax when I was lying awkwardly in the cabinet with kind of sore back at a weird angle, not really being able to see what I was trying to do. And I dropped the screwdriver right on my teeth. Now, if the walls had ears, they learned some new vocabulary. Unfortunately, 11-year-olds do have ears and the ability to sneak up on you. And so once again, I find myself as she asked, who are you angry with? Saying, I don't know. And as a parent, once again, found myself modeling not Christ-likeness, but repentance. A thing I hope you all model to your own children as well. Hard question this morning. Where is anger evident in your heart? Where are quarrels evident in your life? Where are fights evident in your life. Perhaps it is at home this desperately sad reality that the people we love the most are the same people that we often will wound the most. Our anger boils over into this strange kind of family cannibalism. Perhaps not at home, perhaps at work. Again, this sad reality that the Lord has called us to be salt and light, called us to take the blessing of the gospel into the places in which we live and work, and yet how often we are quick to get caught up in the simple gossip of the office or some strange competitiveness with a colleague. Perhaps not at home, perhaps not at work, perhaps here in the very church. In John 17, verse 21, Jesus prays to his Father, May all who believe in me be one. Be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Two things just strike me so much about that prayer. First of all, the fact that Jesus has to pray that his, belie- that his followers, that believers would be one. Why does he have to pray this? Because he knows our tendency to be divided. And so he had much to say in the scriptures about the importance of unity in the Christian community. Second thing, though, that really strikes me is the way in which he ends that prayer. What, what, what is this unity unto? What does he know that this unity will result in? That the world may believe that you have sent me. One preacher comments, you know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, the number one argument that I'm giving you, the number one demonstration that I am giving you, the number one tool that I'm giving you to show the world who I am is the beauty and depth of your love for each other. And if you fail by indifference or by fighting, it's trampling on the one thing God has given you, the main thing God has given you to show the world who he is. How slow we should be to speak divisive word. And yet, for us all, anger, 
quarrels, the fights are a reality in the home, in the workplace, in our churches. And for us all, the stakes are perhaps higher than we realize. And on this difficult topic, we're going to stick very closely to the text, work our way through it phrase by phrase, verse by verse, and see two things. We're going to see the cause of quarrels and fights, and we're going to see the cure to our quarrels and fights. The cause and the cure. Let's dive in first then on the cause of our quarrels and fights. And we see this in verses 1 through 4. If you have a Bible there, please do open it. Pew Bible, you'll find the reading on page 1012. And the teaching begins in verse 1 with a question. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? And what a great question that is. Is that not a question we would want to know the answer to as we think about the conflict that exists in our own lives, in our own culture, in our own nation, in our own world? Now, what is our typical answer to this question? What is the functional answer to this question? So I'm not really asking you, what do you think the right answer is? I'm saying on a day-to-day basis, how would you normally answer that question? And most of us normally answer this question, well, what causes fights? What causes What causes quarrels? Other people. Other people cause fights. Other people cause uh, quarrels. At home, it's that infuriating friend or that thoughtless husband or that nagging spouse or perhaps that ungrateful child. They're what causes fights and quarrels in my home. At work, perhaps it's that overbearing boss or if you are the boss, those lazy employees or perhaps just those attention-seeking colleagues. They're the ones that cause so much grief in the workplace. Or in the church, you know, (laughs) there's always finger pointing to be done. It's those legalistic traditionalists. Or it's those liberal progressives. They're the ones who cause problems in our church. One staff member summed this up so perfectly with just great, I thought, um, personal insight into our own hearts by saying, what causes fights, what causes quarrels? The fact that I'm right and other people are wrong. The fact that I'm right and other people are wrong. Is that not so helpful? Because it really reveals in words we would never want to articulate the truth of what we are saying in the moment of our conflict. We wouldn't have this conflict if you agreed with me. We wouldn't have this conflict if you had the insight to see that I am correct. The problem here is you. (laughs) The problem here is not me. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, as we'll go on to see, James gives us a different answer. He says, your problem is not external. Your problem is not with other people. Your problem is internal. Your problem is within you. What causes fights? What causes quarrels? Something that is within you. Look at verse 1. He says, what causes these things? Is it not this? Tell us, James, what is it? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That your passions are at war within you? Now, of course, we understand that the problem here is not passions in and of themselves. We don't believe that the gospel makes you a passionless person, as if it somehow makes you passive or feeble or wet. No, we believe that the gospel makes you passionate about a million things, from business to finance to justice to poverty to literature to painting to music to sport to the World Cup, okay? Um, England lost yesterday. It was a beautiful day in my life. I said that in the first service and realized, you know, 
what a thing to say in a sermon on fighting and quarreling. You know, yeah, yeah. The gospel makes us passionate people who embrace life and are excited to experience the, the fullness of what the Lord has laid before us. The problem isn't our passions. The problem is, see what the text says, that your passions are at war within you. Your passions are at war within you. We have healthy passions, and we have unhealthy passions, and they conflict in our very souls. Now understand, it's not that you have the angel on one shoulder and the demon on the other, because the problem, remember, resides within us. It's that there's something angelic and there's something demonic in our very hearts. And these conflicting desires are at war. There is a a battle that rages in our hearts. And this has very simple, in some senses, obvious outworkings. At home, you really want to love your spouse. You really do. And you really want them to do the dishes. Right? At work, you really want the team to succeed. And you really crave personal recognition. In your church, of course, you really want the kingdom to advance. But you want it to do so in a way you're comfortable with. And so these conflicting desires are at war within our hearts. And James is telling us that this problem is is internal and then makes its way to the external activities. Our problem begins on the inside and then makes its way to the outside. It's like what we spoke about with the bottle last week. Now, I'm not going to shake it. The front row's looking nervous. Be safe, right? You're fine. Um, But remember what we said. Other people and circumstances might be the shaking, but they only reveal what was already there to begin with. Put it this way. You might say, man, that person brings out the worst of me. That may be true, but the worst of you was there to begin with problem is on the inside, then makes its way to the outside. What causes quarrels and fights amongst you? The conflicted hearts that live within. James then does two things in our text to try and make this truth more concrete to us, to enable us to get our arms around it. First of all, he gives three examples of how our conflicted hearts expose themselves, how what's on the inside makes its way to the outside. We see these three examples in verses 2 and 3. First of all, he says, our conflicted hearts lead to broken relationships. Look at verse 2 with me. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He's saying the external anger that you have, these external fights and quarrels are the result of internal desires and the result of an internal envy. They are just the fruit of your self-centered approach, the fruit of your self-focused heart, the fruit of your selfishness. The second thing he says is that our conflicted hearts lead to prayerlessness. Look in verse 2 again. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. Our conflicted hearts stop us from praying because we tend not to take our sinful desires to God. Our Father who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. My wife is making me do the dishes again, and it's her turn. You know? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My bosses hold me to a deadline. I hate that guy. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as I'll try to forgive my church for running 10 minutes long when I was hungry for lunch. We tend not to say those things. Why? Because prayer unmasks our pettiness. And prayer reveals our sin. And so when sin gets a hold of our hearts, we tend not to pray. In many ways, as a quick aside, the best advice I can give you if you're angry with someone, and right now think of who that person might be. If you are angry with someone, if you're involved in a fight, if you're involved in a quarrel, the best thing you can do is start to pray for that person. To commit to praying for them every single day and just see what the Lord will do in your heart through the activity of prayer. A third example he tells us is that our conflicted hearts lead not just to prayerlessness on one hand, but on the other hand, to unanswered prayer. It's an interesting contrast. He says in verse 3, look with me, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he's saying most of the time you don't come to God with your sinful agenda, especially when it's overt, but sometimes we do, perhaps when it's a little more covert. And he says, um, don't expect that the Lord will answer your prayer if you're simply asking him to advance your own agenda. He's not the vending machine in the sky that if you plug in the right words, out will come the right candy. It will come the right blessing. Uh, Great truth of the scripture is that God loves you too much to give you your selfish desires. The great truth for my heart and yours is that he is marvelously uncooperative to give us things that won't be good for us. He loves you enough to say no. And so the result of our conflicted hearts can be unanswered prayer. After giving us these practical examples of how the internal becomes external, James goes on to make this truth concrete by giving us an illustration, an illustration of what our heart problem looks like. Do you see it there in verse 4? He says, you adulterous people. The conflicts in your heart make you an adulterous people. Now, it's interesting that in the original Greek, the phrase used here is actually you adulteresses. He's referring in the feminine. Now, this doesn't mean he's just referring to the woman in the congregation. He is referring to everybody in the congregation, and he is comparing them all to an adulterous woman. Why is he doing this? Well, he's picking up on that great theme that runs right throughout the Scriptures where God is depicted as the faithful husband. And his people, whether it be Israel or the church, his one people of God, are depicted as the unfaithful bride. And so, of course, the most detailed account of this comes in the Old Testament book of Hosea, where Hosea is commanded to go and marry a prostitute. And then when she is unfaithful to him, even in that marriage, he is commanded to pursue her with his love commanded to do all this, why? That he might be a living illustration of God's relationship with his people. God has loved us like that perfect husband, and we have responded to him like that most imperfect prostitute. And here James says to us, when you harbor anger in your heart, when you get embroiled in fights, when you get embroiled in quarrels, you're guilty of spiritual adultery. conflict in your heart 
being torn between two loves, guilty of spiritual adultery, the cause of quarrels and fights, the conflicted hearts that live within. Now, what do we expect next? I think if we reflect on those truths and meditate on those truths, we expect the Lord to show up as that faithful husband and uh, condemn us as his unfaithful bride. But instead, we get something else. Instead, we get the cure uh, to our fights and our quarrels. Now, what is this cure? Is it uh, try harder, be a better person, you know, stop it? No. You know by now, if you've been here any number of weeks, that the cure is going to be Jesus and the grace of the gospel. But I want you to look at the text with me and see how this isn't an answer that we kind of make up every week. This is the truth of the scripture as God has given it to us. Let's look at the cure uh, to quarrels and fights in verses 5 and 6. Starting in verse 5, he says, Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit? that he has made to dwell in us. Let me read that again, because that's not a verse that's easy to get our heads around. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He's saying the Lord's response to our spiritual adultery is not the response of a jilted or vengeful bride who comes to make us suffer for what we have done. And the Lord's response to our spiritual adultery is not even uh, the rightful demand for justice set to make us pay for the guilt that we have ourselves accrued. Rather, the response to spiritual adultery from the Lord here is to jealously long that our hearts be none but his. To jealously long that our hearts no longer be divided, but that they be his. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Now, we often think of jealousy uh, as, as a very negative word, a word that we would associate with someone who is petty, a word we would associate with someone who is distrustful, perhaps a word that we would associate with someone who is, who is insecure. But there is a rightful kind of jealousy, jealousy, a biblical kind of jealousy, the kind of jealousy that says, you belong to me and I will share you with no other. How would Rosie feel if I said to her, baby, of all the women I love, I love you the most. I'm thinking some facial rearrangement might follow. (laughs) And rightly so. Why? Because she belongs to me and I belong to her. And we aren't sharing each other's hearts with It's that rightful kind of jealousy. And that rightful kind of jealousy that's been spoken of here, the jealousy of a God who rightly refuses to share the hearts of his people with another. Who calls our hearts to no longer be conflicted. So what does God do? Let's again just walk through the text. Jealousy sometimes makes people do crazy things. What does God do? In a sense, he does something crazy. Verse 6, he gives more grace. He gives more grace love this passage, telling us that our wandering hearts are not reclaimed with the sword. God doesn't come and out of fear force us to be back in relationship with him. Rather, our wandering hearts are addressed with nails. And not nails that come to us, but nails that come to his son, compelling us to be back in relationship with him. And this is what the cross is all about. 
We understand that the cross, the sacrifice of the cross makes sense as Christ takes our anger, as he takes our fights, as he takes our quarrels upon himself so that our hearts need no longer be divided between two, indeed, many loves, but might uh, worship him and him alone as Lord and Savior. What do you do to receive this grace? The rest of verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. We get this contrast between, on the one hand, pride, and the clear teaching of Scripture that the only people who will fail to receive grace are the people who fail to confess their need of it. Scriptures teach us that to deny your need of grace is to nail your own coffin shut from the inside. And this kind of pride that doesn't see its need of a Savior is contrasted with humility, the vehicle, as David said, through which grace comes. The people who receive grace are simply those who confess their need of it. And there's a sufficient supply for all who come and do that in Christ's name. Now, how does this cure fights and quarrels, the grace of Christ in our lives? How does this cure fights and quarrels? Here's the sermon in a sentence, paralleling with our sermon from last week. The grace of Christ cures our fights and quarrels because the heart that experiences grace extends grace to others. The heart that experiences grace extends grace to others. Now, I want to try and make this really practical for you by giving some examples of how this works out in day-to-day life and how it does spare us from from troubles. And I've got six things, and I want you to kind of approach it now to reflect upon uh, how it applies to your anger and your fights, but also to reflect on it through the week. Take one each day this week and and reflect upon it. Not things that I came up with. You'll know, some of you will know that before the blog, there was a thing called the book, right? And uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote a few of these, and in one of these books, he talks about revival. It's a book called On Revival. And in it, he reflects upon how a number of the great revivals that he'd seen in his lifetime, where just hundreds of people were coming to Christ, and the Spirit was doing a powerful work, how these revivals had been quenched, how they had ended, and how they had ended and been quenched by division in the church. And reflecting upon this theme, he provides a a spiritual inventory of sorts to help us identify how well we've applied this message to our hearts. And one preacher has given us the benefit of uh, paraphrasing this inventory out of 18th century language. Reflect on these truths and, and, and consider them throughout the week. How is it that the heart that experiences grace will extend grace to others? Number one, without grace you're more aware of the faults of others than you are of your own. With grace, the opposite is true. Without grace, you're quick to point the finger. Without grace, you're quick to see the speck in your brother or sister's eye. Without grace, you're quick to wade into fights and quarrels because you need to point out to them where they are failing. With grace, you're more conscious of the plank in your own eye. And so you don't run headlong into fights and quarrels. Number two, without grace, you speak of others with an air of contempt and disdain. With grace, you only speak with 
compassion. We know what this is like. You know when there's been someone who's driven you crazy or just someone that you think is, is a fool and you get together and normally if you've got some other people who agree with you and you will speak about that third person with language that you would never use in their presence because you'd be ashamed to. And without grace, we're so quick to do that, so quick to become high and mighty. With grace, we speak with compassion. doesn't mean we don't recognize there are challenges, difficulties, failings even. But we only ever speak about such things with a, a, a compassionate, merciful heart. Number three, without grace, you separate from the people you've criticized and from people who've criticized you. Without grace, you'll have this tendency to just distance yourself with people with whom you disagree. Just to put a little bit of space between you and them because you don't really want to deal with them. Grace, on the other hand, enables you to stick with difficult relationships. I wonder, is your life, is, is the path of your life littered with people that you used to know? It's strewn with people who you once were in relationship with but no longer are. Or perhaps you can have the, the positive image of, of that friend who you would now die for that at one point you were, you were, you were ready to kill. You know? That relationship you did persevere with and work through and find redeemed. Number four, without grace, you'll tend to be dogmatic on every point of belief. With grace, you'll be nuanced and teachable. Without grace, we tend to just... Um, and this is actually a particular problem for Reformed Presbyterians, okay? Because we tend to become dogmatic and make everything a biblical issue. So in our minds, instead of having a list of priorities, it kind of gets flattened out so that everything becomes a hill to die on because it's not biblical and the Bible is a hill to die on. And so we're ready to go to war over quite small and insignificant things. With grace, we're able to have a sense of nuance, a sense of balance. We're able to be teachable. Number five, run through these last two quickly. Without grace, you'll often confront other people because you like to justify yourself. With grace, you only confront when necessary. Without grace, you have to correct someone if they... Um, they don't agree with you. You're not able to let a small thing go. With grace, you're able to take yourself a little less seriously. Six, without grace, you'll be unhappy and sorry for yourself because you think that you deserve better. With grace, you'll be joyful and carefree because you know that you deserve a lot worse. Reflect upon these things and how they speak to the quarrel that you find yourself in just now. Reflect upon these things and, and how they apply to the fights that you are involved in just now. Reflect upon how the heart that experiences grace will extend grace to others and consider who you need to extend grace to this week. McLean, we have been blessed with a great heritage of, of grace and unity given to us by the leaders that have gone before, and we want to be jealous about that. We want to be a congregation that so experiences grace that it's able to extend grace to others and be marked by the unity of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, these are hard and in many ways convicting words because they teach us about our own hearts. They hold up the mirror to our souls and we see what we're really like. And what we're really like 
is full of of anger and fights and quarrels. And yet, Lord, we're also uh, conflicted because we also desire to live this life of grace. And so we ask you to come by the power of your Spirit. Enable us to, to, to so experience it, to so dwell with Jesus, that we find ourselves extending the same grace to others. We recognize that we are the cause, and we recognize that you are the cure. And we ask you to be at work in our own hearts and in the heart of our congregation. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.